Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Our first guest up today, he just won the Legislator of the Year for the Republican Caucus in the state of Arizona. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Big, big news. He didn't even he didn't even highlight it for the show. He's so humble. He wouldn't even put that on there. The Legislator of the Year. Matt Gress, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's great to be on with uh, the illustrious uh, two of you, for sure. <laughs> so when you got this award for Legislator of the Year, is it just like a big gold medallion that you wear around your neck now? <laughs> Maybe a target on my back, <laughs> I think. <laughs> hey, um, you were just um, appointed and joined the School Safety Task Force in Arizona. Tell our listeners a little bit about that and why that's important, not only for Arizona, but other states should be considering this. Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn has convened um, a number of different stakeholders across the state, uh, teachers, social workers, school counselors, school resource officers, um, sheriffs, legislators. Uh, It ranges the gamut. And I think he is trying to be responsive to what we've all been hearing uh, across the state and really across the country. Uh, It's one of the issues that I hear about in uh, my legislative district quite a bit, which is how can parents know that when they send their kids to school, uh, they will be safe and they will come home. And um, and there's a variety of ways of of addressing the situation. And and thank God, you know, Arizona has not witnessed one of these mass school shootings that we've seen in in other states. But that shouldn't dissuade us from acting to, you know, take clear, measurable steps to secure our school facilities. I, there's a balance for sure. Um, you know, we we don't want uh, schools becoming prisons, Correct. Um, but, but we do want them to be safe places that parents, staff, and students themselves feel um, is a safe place for learning. So, what you know just i mean you're going to dig more into this so when we go and join these type of task force we get more information than we currently have okay so my question is what does your gut reaction tell you that needs to be done on this right now before getting more details from the task force what does your gut reaction tell you that needs to be done to make schools more secure so parents and kids feel confident when they go to school they're going to be safe i i think there are two two key measures one involves personnel and one involved physical infrastructure. So on the personnel front, a few years ago, when I served as the budget director, we worked on some changes to the school safety grant program where we allowed school counselors and social workers to be part of a school safety apparatus. So you add your SROs, the the so-called cops on campus, uh, and then we added to that on the mental and social uh, health side of this because Mental health is a major uh, factor when you look at um, these shootings. So we recognize that. And we also increased funding. You know, the program started out at $13 million, I believe, back in, let's say, 2018 or 2019. We boosted that to now it's over $82 million that we're spending on the school safety grant program. And there still is um, excess uh, demand versus supply. So I'm on the funding and grant subcommittee uh, of this task force, and we're going to take a hard look at where we can free up resources, and I I believe that there are plenty. So personnel is a side of it. Uh, And in particular, in addition to, you know, not just the social workers and school counselors, SROs have been something I've heard from from parents and, and a number of different stakeholders about having an SRO on every campus. And the challenge with that is uh, SROs are sworn peace officers from uh, police departments. Correct. We have huge vacancies when it comes to filling our police departments as it stands right now. So we're exploring ways where we can tap into talent of perhaps retired uh, sworn peace officers uh, or, uh, uh, you know, staff that meet all of the criteria, but, you know, have not gotten the full what we call AZ post certification. Maybe there is an alternate form that we can provide that opens up 
talented, capable people who care about keeping kids safe um, that can be there to respond when a crisis occurs. So the personnel side is, is one element. And then the physical infrastructure. Uh, you know, when I served on the school board in Central Phoenix, we did a safety threat assessment of every building. We looked at the uh, physical premises, fencing, the doorways, uh, how do you get in and out, who lets people in and out, uh, cameras, locks, all of the above. And I think that if a school in Arizona is going to go out for a bond or a capital override, the first thing that they need to prioritize is the safety of their facilities. And if they don't have a safety assessment done, they are flying blind. And I don't think they should be asking voters for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars if they don't know what they need to do to improve the security of their physical infrastructure. Matt, that's a really good point, because one of the things that's underrated, frankly, are the secured entry and exit points at at schools. There was an incident. It it barely got covered. Uh, I think it was the end of last month, July 31st. I had to actually go to DuckDuckGo because you can't find this link on on Google um, for an attempted school shooting in Memphis, Tennessee at a Jewish school. The shooter could not get in. They opened fire outside the building and then were taken down uh, uh, by police and and caught. So no one was hurt. You know, nothing happened. Obviously, something happened, but it wasn't a traumatic incident in the way these others have been. And that was just a matter of simple physical security like you're talking about. It's not that hard to implement these, especially when the legislature is putting the kind of money you're talking about into it, right? Absolutely. And uh, take, for instance, the study on Uvalde, another case in point where the door was propped open. Um, it was a uh, you know lock and key type of door. You know, in this day and age, they need to be electronic locks, you know, the magnetic locks where you need a badge to swipe in and out. Um, there needs to be alarms on these external doors when they're left open. I mean, uh, you can go to a gym and you go out the wrong exit, <laughs> and within 15 seconds, uh, you know, the <laughs> the alarms are, are sounding. And if we can do it at some of these other places that that aren't as sensitive of spaces as schools, we can definitely prioritize that um, at at our school campuses. And that was something we included in this year's budget. Speaking of, uh, you know, private or parochial schools, the Department of Homeland Security has established a grant program that uh, that these places of worship and, and, and the parochial schools can access to help bolster their security. Uh, we had a, we heard from a rabbi that, you know, talked about the increase in uh, anti-Semitic behavior and how, you know, they're taking great pains to ensure that these sacred spaces are kept safe for uh, parishioners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anything else on that before we move on? Because I do want to get on to this uh, City of Scottsdale plan to house homeless in a hotel there. Uh, You have raised some concerns with that, as have others. Yes, uh, let's, let's chat about that one. That one's been a so, hot topic. Start by telling, uh, because we're, we're on in markets across the country, literally coast to coast now, folks. If, if you're listening to Breaking Battlegrounds, you can be doing it in San Diego. You can be doing it in Miami. You can be here in Phoenix. You can be almost anywhere in the country and, and hear this program. You can be anywhere online and download and, and subscribe to our podcast and get all of our content. But uh, folks probably don't know if they're not here in Phoenix, and even if they are, they probably don't know what's going on here. So can you give us a little background? What What is this situation? Well, here in Phoenix and in the Valley, just like everywhere else in the country, homelessness has really gripped uh, communities. It has created such misery and tragedy uh, for the people experiencing homelessness, uh, as well as the surrounding communities that are affected by uh, people living outside. And this year at the legislature, we put in $60 million, $60 million uh, to invest in homelessness programs um, that, that can get people off the streets and into the treatment that they need. And that was the intent all along, is that we need to approach this from a treatment first modality versus a housing first modality, which I think 
a lot of uh, cities and, and public policy has advocated for years, and I, I think it's failed. It, it has well, totally failed, and it's just warehousing the problem is what they're doing. You're absolutely. You're absolutely right there. And, and that's exactly what has happened in a quasi sort of way with uh, an initiative the Department of Housing has uh, executed with a number of cities, not just Scottsdale, but the city of Phoenix, Mesa, Flagstaff, and others. And what they're doing essentially is converting rooms at an active operating hotel converting these rooms into homeless shelters. Uh, in Scottsdale, 10 rooms. Uh, it ranged between 10 to 15. And uh, as part of the contract with the Department of Housing, the city of Scottsdale has to set aside at least uh, three of these rooms, and they're going to be operating year-round, um, for people who live in the zone, which is a, a you know, which is a, uh, a notorious place that has gained national attention about failing uh, people uh, in downtown Phoenix, just these large, massive encampments. So people from the zone in central Phoenix being moved up to Scottsdale, as well as foreign nationals who would have otherwise been deported under the now expired Title 42, which is now under litigation. The Florida Attorney General is challenging uh, the, uh, the Biden administration's approach to immigration. So what we said is, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is going on here with this program? Did you... Did you confer with the surrounding community? It's abutted. The, uh, the, the property in, in question is, is abutting um, the largest HOA in the United States. It's across from a school and other amusements that cater to kids. Are you doing background checks? I mean, there were just so many questions, and we reached out to the city of Scottsdale to ask those questions, and their answers have been, uh, have fallen short of satisfactory. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I want to continue on with with this a little bit more when we come back from our break here. We've got about 45 seconds before we go to break. Uh, one of the points that I was going to make on that is it's $940,000 state grant to house 15 people, 10 to 15. So anywhere from 94000 you know, down to a, a cheap price of, of $63,000 per person to house them for the year. And you ask a bunch of questions that I think need to be answered about what's going to happen when they're in that housing. We're going to be coming back with more from Matt Gress here on Breaking Battlegrounds in just a moment. Welcome back. Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. Continuing on the line with us in just a moment, Arizona Legislator of the Year, Matt Grass. Freshman legislator win that award. Pretty darn impressive, folks. Do you know what else is impressive? Being able to earn a 10.25% fixed rate of return in this Biden economy. The stock market is all sorts of volatile. Inflation continues to rage out of control. This is not a time to take a lot of risks with your finances. You need a reliable product that delivers a high fixed interest rate of return. Then you need to talk to our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Give them or give them a ring there uh, at 888-YREFI24. And make sure you tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Okay. Matt, continuing on, when we went to break, I, I mentioned that the cost of this program, it's a $940,000 state grant. As you mentioned, Scottsdale's planning to house 10 to 15 people. That's a lot of money per person, over 60000 maybe over 90000 per person, depending on how many there is. And you asked, uh, you sent a letter to the city of Scottsdale that raised a bunch of questions that I thought were frankly, really important uh, about community outreach program implementation. What's going to happen to these people? Are they just going to be housed, uh, you know, warehoused like we were talking about, or is there going to be a treatment program to help get them back on track? Matt, what do you, have you gotten any answer? What are some of these questions that, that citizens in Scottsdale need to be asking and then get those answers to? Well, it, it's, it's a mixed bag. And one of the reasons why I'm concerned about this program, um, you know, it's been portrayed as it's helping grandma who couldn't afford the rent anymore and has just recently been evicted from her apartment. Let's keep her from becoming homeless or, you know, same situation with a single mom with kids. 
that's a very different type of situation versus what we call chronic homelessness, or uh, Mayor right. Gallego is referred to as service resistant. And you're going to be putting um, those participants in this program, and there is just this uh, unfounded confidence that they're going to be able to solve the issue. And you're regionalizing what is a tragedy that has been unfolding for quite some time now in central Phoenix. You're regionalizing that to places like Scottsdale. But what's even worse and it, you, is that it's one thing to take an entire hotel facility and go through the process of converting it to a homeless shelter. But what you're doing is operating the hotel simultaneously to a homeless shelter in the same location. So a family on vacation is right next to uh, someone who's just experienced one of the most chaotic, traumatic uh, you know, times of their life right next door, unknowing uh, of what's happening. Uh, the hotel uh, paying customers are not given the benefit of the doubt. They're not given any information about whether this is an active homeless shelter. I think that's pertinent information to know for a paying customer. And I think it's, it's, very, it's very problematic. Um, and it hasn't worked in other places. Look at San Francisco. Uh, L.A. is going to be having a measure on the ballot next year uh, related to um, forcing hotels to accept homeless vouchers. But this you, is just not the approach. You, you brought up a, a good point about the type of, of person who's homeless who's going into this, whether it's someone who's very recently on the street, what I would tend to, to describe as transitionally homeless, people who were generally able to get off the streets fairly quickly. What is that, 10, 10 15 percent of homeless? That's probably half. Chuck, half are transitionally homeless, but we don't, they don't stay homeless for very long. Right. We but, don't even but, consider them. But those are people generally go to shelters or something, too, they, correct? They, they will go to shelters. They will couch surf. They will do okay. whatever they need to do, and very soon they will get off the street. We dealt with this a lot in Phoenix. Um, the type that Matt was talking to, these service-resistant homeless, are your chronic street homeless. They're, the, they're who people actually think of as homeless. They're the ones that won't go to the Salvation Army because they require them not to take drugs there. It's exactly right, yeah. Okay. And so that's a very different population. You're dealing with a lot of pathologies, including criminal pathologies that you're dealing with at that point. And, and you're clearly right to bring this up. There's a, another element to this I want to touch on which is what you said about the zone. Uh, Phoenix had, had allowed this enormous homeless sprawling encampment near downtown, totally out of control. Judge, uh, they were sued. Judge stepped in, said, you've got to mitigate this. The judge clearly in their order, in his orders was saying, hey, you have to provide alternatives, including structured camping and all this. One of the things that's going on right now is Phoenix spent a bunch of money on a structured camping site that now they can't use because they put it in a talk in in an area with a toxic uh, uh, environmental problem. They knew that problem existed before it went. They they went out there. So they spent all this money, achieved nothing, and are back at square one and are pushing the problems off on people in your district and and around, elsewhere around the state. We're seeing it throughout the entire valley now, uh, much more much more significantly because of that. How, I mean, how do we start getting some of these liberal cities on track to, to start actually doing their part the right way? Well, we've, the state has provided money, and we've, we've tried to do our part in investing in programs that should be evidence-based. Um, but unfortunately, I think that the executive has uh, incorrectly interpreted what the legislature was trying to do with, you know, we included $150 million from the housing trust fund. That's to help people stay in their homes. $60 million for homelessness, people who aren't in their homes anymore and we need to find a place for them to be. Uh, there, there just seems to be more of a focus on climate change uh, in this context versus finding real solutions for people experiencing homelessness. And um, I, I think we have to sue. Uh, I think, uh, and, and you know, the courts are going to have to force the cities to do what they have been loathed to do. And until you can clean up these tragedies like the zone, it's going to be hard to engage in a more holistic conversation about how we address homelessness in the Valley. Um, let's change, change topics here real quick. We had we have two minutes left. Biden's visit. What are your thoughts? He came to Arizona this weekend. <laughs> he decided to take more property away from rural miners. Um, what are your thoughts on it? A million acres removed uh, from the tax rolls. And you'd think that... Uh, by the way, how much... Democrats, by the way, let me ask you a question real quick. How much does that hurt schools? 
public schools? How much does that take out? Significantly. Oh, significantly. Um, because they're tied to either state trust land uh, or they're tied to a private taxpaying um, owners. And all of those dollars go into the equalization formula that helps fund schools. But not a peep, actually praise from, from the Democrats. No real engagement with half of the monument. They decided to go to Flagstaff and do their public uh, outreach, but not two hours, two and a half hours to the west in Kingman, where there was a clearly different point of view. And then, you know, we talk about uh, there are so many precious minerals here on these claims that could help us achieve more clean energy or help us achieve energy independence uh, or other you know, key areas. Pre- precious and minerals that are... Away. Precious minerals that are being mined all over the world using much dirtier mining techniques using, using, than we're using. Using child labor. Yeah. Child yeah. labor across yeah. the sea, overseas. Yeah. And by countries who hate America. Yes. So if this was a, an opportunity to make America stronger, I clearly missed the Qu- mark. Quickly, real quick here, I want to get back to this question. How much money, I know we got 30 seconds, real quick. How much money do you think it takes out of public education for Arizona? Just a guesstimate. Give a range. Mm, that's, that's hard to, to say, depending on the number of. Mining claims because there are property taxes. 30 million, 40 million, 30, 40 million? Oh, I, I would have to be more than that. Okay. It would have to be more than that. Over the lifetime, over 20 years, say, uh, I think you're going to see much more than that. Matt, real quick, 15 case. seconds. How do folks stay in touch with you and your work? Uh, you can look me up, Matt Gress, M A T T G R E S S dot com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Gress, two T's. Uh, and just uh, feel free to reach out. I'm All right. Always yours. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day, man. We appreciate you. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Up next today, Tim Chapman, Senior Advisor at Advancing America Freedom, a public policy organization founded by Vice President Mike Pence. He's also principal at P2 Public Affairs where he works with clients to build national campaigns to influence public policy. He's former executive director of Heritage Action, Action, chief of staff at the Heritage Foundation, and has advised Senators DeMint, Nichols, and Hutchinson. It's a heck of a resume. Tim, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the program. Hey, thank you both for having me. Excited to be here. So tell us about what Advancing American Freedom is working on right now. Well, thanks for asking. Um, As you mentioned there in the intro, Advancing American Freedom was founded by uh, Vice President Mike Pence. And um, he founded this thing about uh, a a little more than a year and a half ago. Um, And he, you know, I've always loved him. I came to Washington in in 2001, and he came to Washington a little after that time uh, as a congressman. So I followed him. Um, and always had great admiration for him because, you know, as we were working on the outside to try to influence Congress towards conservative ends, he was on the inside and he was always fighting for the limited government perspective and the conservative perspective and the pro-life perspective um, in, in the House of Representatives. And he did that in many different ways there. And so he was super policy focused. Um, and then, you know, once he left the administration, um, you know, he was thinking about ways that he could um, continue to be focused on policy. He worked a little bit with um, with the Heritage Foundation, and then he began to build out his own organization, which was Advancing American Freedom. Um, and he asked um, he asked me to come on board there uh, a while back, and he said, "Look, <laughs> like we knew that he was thinking about running for for right. president, but but he said, look, I." I I need people who are going to come on board with this organization. I need this organization to exist irrespective of my, of my political future. And, you know, Tim, will you come in and work with this team? Um, and I was, you know, I jumped at the chance because I've always, I, I, like I said, I've always like we did. So, you know, our focus is on kind of the, the traditional three legs of the stool in the conservative movement, social, social va- values, uh, fiscal values, uh, and a strong national defense. And, um, we kind of see, you know, there's a lot of things, as you both know, probably better than I. You know, there's a lot of trends happening in the conservative movement and the Republican Party right now. Um, and one of them that kind of worries me a little bit is a trend, you know, away from fiscal conservatism. Yes. 
It's, yes. a, it's a trend away from American leadership um, around the globe. Well, Tim, and, Tim, let me and ask. I think we wanted to talk about that. Yeah, Tim, let me let me ask you this. We we talk about this a lot. It, you know, it look, it's not as sexy as hitting some woke issue, right? It doesn't. It doesn't. Yep. Doesn't. Yep. It's not good for fun conversation. It's also complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. But, Tim, how do we get out of this mess? It's a mess. I, I, I mean, I, I'm so worried about it and what it's going to start doing in reality in the next you five or six years. You just had our credit years. rating downgraded. Yeah, I mean, int- people don't understand yeah. interest rates are going to be higher. I mean, what people don't get is how this, you know, they always talk about trickle-down economics. And, and, yeah, and we just right. recently had our show about Biden's inflation. Biden's inflation yeah. cost people $14,000. For per real dollars Per family. Extra yeah. dollars. Yeah. Which That's means... Right. They either use their savings, which we know most people don't have. They borrow from friends yep. or family, which a lot of people don't have friends or family yep. can loan them the money. Or they use credit cards, right. which have minimum 19 to 20% interest rates. So really, inflation's in the high teens when you think of it yeah. that way, right? How do we yeah. – I mean, I don't think in our lifetime, you and I and Sam here are going to be able to pay off $30 trillion. But what do we need to do to show the world, to show the markets, to strengthen our currency – Keep low interest. What is the plan we need to do? Do we just need to say we're not going above this level anymore? What do we need to do? Yeah, I mean, you're so right on what is happening right now with inflation. And Biden's inflation is basically just a tax on, you know, on average families across this country. Um, and that's the first wave of what's going to happen to people if the fiscal profligacy continues. The right. second wave is actual raising of taxes on people. So you'll you'll not only be taxed by the inflation, but it's, eventually it's going to catch up to us and to pay for all the programs that we're running right now. And we're going to have to raise taxes, and that that's actually the left game plan. That's where they want to go with this. They you know they're they are comfortable to wait out having discussions about. Social Security reform, Medicare reform, you know, welfare spending, you know, any kind of spending. They're comfortable to wait out that discussion because they think when push comes to shove, we'll get to the point where we just have to, you know, raise taxes. Right. But I'll tell you the first thing to do, you know, to, to address this is not to run away from it. And that's what we're afraid of right now. We see a party that, you know, we love this party. We've been Republicans and conservatives a long time. But I see some of my best friends in some of the greatest think tanks in this country and some of my best friends who are working with some of great leaders on Capitol Hill refusing to talk about uh, the spending issues. And so that's one thing that AAF wants to do is to, is to, is to raise the issue again, right. even though it's out of step with where we are right now. It's a populist moment. We're going to raise it. We're going to keep talking Good. about it. Good. Yeah, fantastic. We're going to be coming back with more from Tim Chapman in just a moment, folks. You can follow him at Tim Chapman on Twitter. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Stick around, folks, for the next segment. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the fiscal health of this country and some other things happening in Washington. Breaking Battlegrounds, coming right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Continuing on the line with us in just a moment, Tim Chapman, Senior Advisor at the Advancing American Freedom, a public policy organization founded by Vice President Mike Pence. They're focused a lot on classical conservative issues like fiscal fiscal responsibility. And folks, if you want to be fiscally responsible, one great way to do that is to get some quality diversity in your in your portfolio. And one and a fantastic way to do that is to go to our check out our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y, then refy.com. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, 10.25% fixed rate of return. The market goes up, the market goes down, you keep making money. Check them out, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24, and make sure you tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. So, Tim, I'm going to go back to uh, talked about your, your what you're doing. Um, so Sam and I were talking before the show today that Republicans are like a two-note pony. It's like, okay, we're going to the moon. Well, how does this affect abortion or Second Amendment rights? We seem to right. – <laughs> right. we, we just seem to have uh, the political mailing thing. Here's a checklist. and. You know, those are important issues. I'm not disagreeing, but there are so many other issues. You know, for, you know, for example, I did not have my bingo card in 22, 23 that Republicans, that there's a segment of Republicans, not all of them, but a segment who are sympathetic to Russia and the Ukraine war, right? And then they try to couch it and say Putin's evil. It's like Democrats talking about crime. Well, I, I'm, I'm, right. I'm not, I, I hate crime, but I don't want to fund yeah. cops, right? Yeah. 
right, right. Has this yep. caught you? I mean, you've been in this. You were you worked at Heritage Action. You worked for some of our great senators. Has this caught you by surprise that this 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 isolationist movement has taken such strength? So you know, it, it, it's always been latent in our movement, um, and as you all know, you know, there were times in our movement where we were more isolationist than not. You know, as the as we rolled through the Reagan years, that changed, um, and we projected American strength and led the world to a better place. Um, but you know, that latency has now caught up, and there's uh, and, and you see it everywhere. And I think it's caught steam for a few reasons. Um, and you know, the first reason is that that just you know we did we didn't do you know a, a great job in our foreign entanglements over the last twenty years. <laughs> Right. So, and that may be a, almost you know, over the last hundred years. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, like exactly. World War so, II forward. Yeah. So I understand that. Okay. Um, so there's a track record there, and there's a problem. There's also this is one area we were just talking about spending. I think there is still within the conservative movement, um, you know, a desire to be fiscally responsible, um, and this is low hanging fruit that they perceive. A lot of you know people perceive. Sure. Well, why are we going to send another twenty four billion to Ukraine? Now, but I think the biggest thing driving this right now, especially with respect to Ukraine, is just good old-fashioned politics. Um, if you look at the politics around Ukraine, this is one where Democrats just accidentally got one right. <laughs> they, 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 they're supportive of the Ukrainian effort, but it's not because they somehow found principle on this. Um, it's because they perceive, you know, in their, in their version of history, the only reason that Donald Trump ever won in 2016 was because Vladimir Putin handpicked him and used all sorts of you know, machinations to install them in office. So this is Ukraine versus Putin, and Putin is the guy in their mind to put Trump in the, in the, in the White House. And so, therefore, Ukraine must be <laughs> protected at all costs. They're and fighting. There's a knee-jerk, yeah, there's a knee-jerk reaction there from uh, re- Republican voters, grassroots conservatives who are like, well, if all these Democrats are flying Ukrainian flags, this must be the wrong cause. Right, right. Yeah. The Democrats are there or, or want us to be there to fight Trump in reality, right? Yes. And and you've got a, yes. a handful of Republicans well, 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 who are obviously against that. As Sam and I talk a lot with guests, we had Congressman Issa on last week, is you can agree that Ukraine has much corruption in it. You can also sure. agree that it's not cool for Russia to go take over a country that it wants to take over because it doesn't stop yes. there. I mean, they're not mutually right. exclusive, right? And so yeah. it's interesting. You know, and talk about the foreign policy the last, you know, 75 years or so. I, I think that's sort of a cheap shot people take. I mean, if you look at cities that practice practice the broken window theory and then they abandon it with cops, look what happened to them. And I hate to break yeah, it to right. people, but if the United States is not doing a lot of this. This rule is a bigger crap hole than it is now. Well, Chuck, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's, that's happened, right. we pulled back from a lot of our engagement and a lot of our economic and military engagement from the Pacific Theater, right. from Latin America. You go focus on the Middle East. But... And, and China yeah. has, has stepped into that breach in a way that's, that's very right. damaging for us. I, I agree. All right, let's talk about um, <laughs> trade. Um, does, yeah. it, does the Republican need to start becoming more productive and, and proactive on getting trade agreements again, or are we going to let China and other people just do it? Yeah, so the way we think about this is we have learned some lessons about trade over the last 20 years. Um, Free trade is still an overwhelmingly good thing. You know, people producing things and trading those things and bringing, you know, profit to their nation and their communities is a wonderful thing. And then people get to have the benefits of that. But we did not do it right with China. That's very clear. And China is uh, is far and away our biggest global challenge uh, for the United States over the next couple decades. So what we need to be thinking about, the world's already doing this in its own kind of in its own way. The world is, you know, dividing into free countries, you know, free spheres of influence and those that are run by authoritarians like China, like Russia, uh, like Iran. Uh, and and we need to um, we need to make lots of great trade agreements with our allies, period. You know, and we need to think about how to do this in a way where we're not relying on China for the things that we really need. So we we're stuck right now. We're stuck dealing with kind of the residue from some bad policy decisions that is in, are in the rearview mirror. And we have to figure out how to get out of it. You know, so for example, like 
you know, China is so intertwined in our economy right now. We've got, you know, great American companies like Ford that are opening plants, you know, with Chinese batteries, Chinese battery plants in Michigan and, and other places around the country. You know, and that's a problem. Like, that is a problem because China having that foothold in our economy is not a good thing. So we need to think, all right, well, what is it that we need to do as Americans to wean ourselves off of, you know, the need for Chinese renewable energies or batteries or whatever it is? and build our own source of domestic energy here. And you guys, you know, yeah, go. Can I I stop you on that front? Because that's relevant to a discussion we just had with our previous guest on this program. It's something that just happened here in Arizona. It's not Mm -hmm. just previous bad policy. We just had Joe Biden come out to Arizona, take a million acres that is key mining territory for any number Mm -hmm. of precious minerals that we need for these things, and declare it a national monument and take it off the table. Exactly. That is yep. that is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing, right? That's exactly right. I mean, we if, if and why would Democrats be doing that when they are the ones demanding that we produce green vehicles and you know use all these renewable sorts of energy? Because it's but an elitist party. It's an exactly. elitist party. Exactly. It's amazing how they've become. I guess they've always been latte liberals, right? There, there's always been that group, but it has been yep. exasperated since Trump. It's just like, because yeah. I hate this guy, I'm going to become a latte liberal now. It's just so out of the realm of moral consciousness, I don't know where to begin. Yeah, and it's a logical disconnect according to their own principles, too. So if you want us to have more uh, more electric-powered vehicles in the United States, but you also say that you are against authoritarian regimes who you know punish religious you know uh, dissent or any sort of political dissent, you know, China— um, then why are you forcing Ford and other companies to use Chinese resources to build the things that you are forcing us to to do, you know, in your own the, the IRA bill that they just passed? So, like, it's a complete mess. They're all over the place on it. Republicans and conservatives really have a chance to come in on the energy issue and to, to double down on what we produce, whether it's, you know, gas, uh, oil, et cetera, uh, you know, or to, or to even win over some of that renewable stuff. Yeah, why, like there, we should be, we should be using those mines in Arizona. Yeah, Minnesota are, has the same thing. Why are we not hammering? Why is our party not hammering the left on this, the very simple fact that mining activity here in the United States is far less environmentally damaging oh, than mining I'll, almost I'll anywhere I'll raise else. my hand on that because it's not abortion yeah. or gun rights. We don't talk yeah. about anything else. Right. Yeah. No. I. I, I look. I. We're. I'm with you on that. I think that's one of the reasons we created Advancing American Freedom, and that's what what, what Vice President Pence really wanted is to try to bring a policy discussion back to the party because right now it's so personality based. I mean, it is personality based. It's based on whatever the latest thing on Twitter is. You know, I, I don't even. I can't even check Twitter anymore because it's driving me insane. Yeah. Although I do, I'll, I'll admit to it. I do. You're an addict. Um, You're an addict. We'll get I'm you. Addict, we'll get you help. Yeah. Sorry. I guess it's not Twitter. X. Whatever we're calling it. Um. <laughs> you know, but it, it it is a it is a bad situation. Like if we're able to focus this on the policies, the the left is such so bent in pretzels as we were just discussing on so much of this stuff, and they're on the wrong side of the American people. We'd be a sixty percent party. Um pretty easily if we do this stuff and energy is just huge and it all ties together it's the energy stuff it's what we were talking about earlier on the spending stuff and the spending stuff also leaves us very weak to china um so there's a lot of opportunity here but we kind of gotta um we kind of gotta pull it together as a movement what are you seeing ahead of these upcoming budget negotiations i mean are is there any real appetite on our side to stand firm and get real concessions during this negotiation yeah i mean look there there is there there certainly is you know the 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 house freedom caucus guys are um have been consistently saying they want to use these leverage points to score some wins on fiscal discipline um there so that's you know but really that's like 20 republicans in the house uh who want to do that and then there's probably another 60 to 70 um that also would be on board fighting with those guys uh if they can identify an achievable um you know outcome that you know makes sense and that is politically popular there's a debate right now as to whether or not you use this uh, this leverage point for fighting on the border or whether you use it for fiscal stuff. And frankly, guys, I, I don't know. <laughs> 
I don't know where, where they're going to go with it. Um, I hope they, I think they should use it for fiscal stuff. I, I, uh, because I think anytime you're having a, a spending fight, it makes more logical sense to me to just attach it to spending rather than some of the other issues as much as I want a victory on the border. Um, so, but, but, but I can't, I can't handicap it for you because it's, you know, I think we'll end up in a shutdown. And I think once we end up in a shutdown, you know, it's like, is this a three day shutdown? Is it a 13 day shutdown? I don't know. If, if and they, I don't know where they land. If they go shut down, they just need to keep it shut till they get what they want. If you're going to take the political prize, just say, I don't care if I lose. That's right. We're going yeah. to just do it. Yeah. So multiple, I have a, I have a quiz for you here. What's more realistic that we get to a uh, balanced budget annually within 10 years that we get the border secure or the Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl. <laughs> the, the, you asked this he's because a Browns you fan. saw that I'm a Cleveland yeah, Browns yeah, yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, look, hope springs eternal. This is the best time of year to be a Cleveland Browns fan. We're going all the way this year. <laughs> Keep the dream alive, buddy. Chuck, Keep the dream Chuck, alive. Yeah, their team is not terrible anymore. I, oh, yeah, you never know. I, I got I to say, I put my odds on the Browns. <laughs> well, I do yeah, too. What, what, That's the point. I put my odds on the Browns. That's how yeah, bad yeah, this it, is. I know. Look, guys, we're off-season champs every single off-season. All right, we always win the off-season. I don't know if anyone saw the big, the number one movie on Netflix right now is the Johnny Manziel special, and uh, that just peels back the onion about how dumb the decisions we make as Browns, that, you know, as a Browns team are. That was a stunning documentary, by the way. Like, yes, it's a good watch. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe you really do need to hire Kevin Costner from Draft Day, who is a yeah, pretend yeah, yeah. general manager. <laughs> um, Tim, with limited time yeah. left, tell us how you got into this. I came to DC, uh, you know, right out of college. I knew in college that that I wanted that I wanted to be involved in politics, uh, and that I I thought I I think politics, despite you know. The bad rap it, it deservedly gets is a noble profession if done right, and I think we need to find a way to make politics work for this country. I came here in 2001, um, and kind of got the bug and got hooked. And um, and the longer I've stayed here, the more I think we got to find a way to get it right. And um, I tried to escape many times. I tried to escape, but DC sucks you back in. <laughs> and so you know we'll, we'll just keep working. I got into it th- that way, and. Uh, and we're going to stick it out and see if we can make something really big. Great. Happen Fan, in, fantastic. In Thank Great you job. so much, Tim Chapman, Senior Advisor at Advancing American Freedom. You can follow them at advancingamericanfreedom.com and follow Tim at Tim Chapman on Twitter. Tim, thank you so much, folks. Stay tuned. We've got a continuation of an education fight, a professor fight here in Arizona. You don't want to miss it on the podcast only segment. Thank you, Tim. Welcome back to the podcast segment of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, if you've been following our show, you've been in tune with uh, what happened at the Barrett Honors College at ASU with a protest by a number of the professors trying to, despite whatever they might claim, trying to shut down a free a, an event featuring some conservative speakers, uh, Charlie Kirk, Dennis Prager, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, and, and others. Uh, they called it a white supremacist event. They did everything they could on campus to uh, chill the free speech of these individuals and to to basically to hide this event. Uh, students were bullied and threatened by professors. The materials for this event were taken down. There was signi- I mean, really, it was a, a very concerted effort. We have been talking about this. We had Ann Atkinson, who was the director of the program that put the event together, who was subsequently fired. We've had her on the program. After we had her on, we had a Professor Brooks Simpson. Uh, you may have heard his segment. He said we were completely wrong. Then we had him on the air. We gave him 40 minutes. And frankly, I didn't feel like Chuck, he contributed anything particularly no. to the conversation. I mean, he told us we were wrong, but he could never say why we were actually wrong or why Ann was wrong or any of this. It really came down to a convoluted logic. And so we, we have another professor from ASU who's been part of this discussion, uh, Dr. Owen Anderson, uh, professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at ASU. He writes about the radical ideologies of race, uh, class, race, and gender used by some to coerce students and prevent free speech. So obviously 
really, really relevant to what we're talking about here. He's also a pastor at Historic Christian Church of Phoenix. He's been working on the problem of DEIB, anti-racism, decolonizing the curriculum, secular universities, and the loss of academic freedom that has attended those movements. Um, and you know, this is something I don't think is going away anytime soon. This is a major problem when you have universities stifling free speech and the free exchange of ideas. So, uh, Dr. Owen Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time today and joining us to continue this discussion. We really appreciate it because we know that every time someone like you comes on a program like this and, and talks uh, honestly and openly about it, you're putting yourself under the gun from a lot of your colleagues. And so uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, and thank you for being willing to participate in this discussion. Well, yeah, thank thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this. And and uh, there is you know there is some of that pushback. I I was told at one point by my dean not to speak to the media without getting ASU approval, and that <laughs> that that got me to appeal to Fire, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And that's a that's a Fire is a group that kind of monitors universities. Universities all want to be rated as a green light including ASU. So FIRE got involved, and, and ASU took that back. But what they did tell me was, my provost specifically said, before I talk to the media, I have to say, this is my own personal opinion. I don't represent ASU. And, and, and so, and so yeah. yeah, folks, let's be clear. We're talking to Dr. Owen Anderson. This is his own personal opinion, and he does not represent ASU. Yep. He simply works... Well, what, I, what I'm curious... I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt. No, well, I was I'm just going to say, you work there, and, you, and you've been part of this discussion. So thank you for yeah. taking the time. Yeah, and I'm curious to see if that's done for everybody or just the conservative guy. Well, he, Professor Simpson, in fairness, made it very clear that he was not speaking for ASU. Gotcha. So I think you, I think you all got the same memo. And, and actually, I, <laughs> I agree with that memo. I, I think agree. professors I should be able to say whatever they want and not speak for the university. I agree. I agree. Well, and that's one of the issues with this letter by the Barrett faculty is they wrote it on ASU resources and as Barrett professors. They didn't say they're speaking as private citizens. So that is one of the issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's an issue. I mean, I look I, and I'm sure you would say and I, I've seen uh, a lot of the comments you made online and this and other issues. And I would generally assume you agree with the statement that, hey, no one's trying to stop these professors from saying that they do not like these speakers or that they you know, think that these right. speakers don't have anything to offer. Right. That's their opinion. Fine. But there's a difference. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Exactly. And so that's actually been ASU's point is to say, well, the event happened, so that's free speech, and the professors objected, and that's their free speech. But the, the concern has never been that they objected. The concern was how they did it, that they used ASU resources, they used their classrooms, and they intimidated students. Those are things that are clearly violations of our ASU faculty manual. And so that's been the problem. And, and how much do you see this because of, of the work you're doing? How much do you see this? I mean, to me, this is a really fundamental – this incident highlighted a really fundamental underlying fight in academia uh, between a handful of what I would call traditionalist free speech and, yeah. and free thought advocates and then this new DEI bureaucracy. Yeah, well, exactly. I think so. I think – it, the letter itself, written by 39 of the Barrett faculty, which is a, a supermajority, didn't get to any issues. It spent its time calling the people they disagree with purveyors of hate, white nationalist bigots. And so you left, if you read the letter, you left it thinking, well, what, what do you disagree with, though? Like, what's the issue that you would take, and what's your argument against it? And so that's really what happens when you have this DEI philosophy, which those are all very positive words. Diversity is a good word. Inclusion is a good word. We want to do those things, equity. But they're actually part of a social philosophy, which says from the outset things like America is structurally racist. And if you don't agree with us, you're one of the racists. And so it shuts down actual conversation because you're just not allowed to doubt it or debate it. I want to focus real quick, doctor, on the, on the equity, because if we're talking about equity as in I have equity in my bank account, it's an right. unmitigated good thing for anybody. But when you're talking about equity in an academic setting, that's a very loaded and charged word that's very different, whose actual meaning in practice is very different from the perception that the average member of the public has about it, right? Exactly. I mean, all three of the words in DEI 
don't mean what the public thinks they mean. Because it, it, I mean, that's really what you do. Right. You're both involved in politics, and in politics, you pick positive words. You say, "Well, we're pro-choice. Everyone likes choice." Uh, you, you don't say, "Well, we're pro-killing babies." Right. So that's what you do: is you pick a positive term. So that's what they've done here. So equity means because America is structurally racist, we need to redivide wealth appropriately. And so that means that some people have been getting privileges and they need to have their wealth taken away and given to other people who, although they may not have been direct objects of the discrimination, maybe their ancestors were, and so they should be given that wealth. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it, there's also a tie to, to just Marxism and equality of outcomes, right? Um, well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's one thing is, um, you know, the, the Barrett faculty have said, well, we said they're white nationalists, but then we're getting called Marxists. Well, wait, there's a big difference. Well, they don't Dennis like— Dennis they... doesn't believe he's a white nationalist. Well, yeah. These professors, many of them identify as Marxists, so this is not name-calling. It's just saying this is what they believe they are. Well, they don't—it's it's a funny pattern, and I think conservatives probably do it too, but you see it a lot in academia. They like to go and tattoo people with these phrases, right? I mean, yeah. look, there's— there are many things to be called that have a very ill effect on all of us mentally, but being called a bigot, um, yep. it, it's, it's a, basically, and I think it stays with you. It stays with you. Yeah, that's the worst one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, and it's just horrible and they know this. And so when you mm-hmm. turn around and say, well, you're a Marxist, you're a commie, they're like, oh, we're being attacked. Well, y- yeah. you started this idiot conversation to begin with. Why don't yeah. you just well, shut up? Is- and if someone told me, hey, I'm not a Marxist, I'd, I'd be fine saying, okay, well, tell me what you are. I'll use that term. But the truth is they teach that all of history is a conflict between economic classes and that the rich rule over the poor and that money should be redistributed. I mean, that's all straight out of the Communist Manifesto. Right. So, so that's not an insult. It's just, a, it's just to say that's what they are, whereas no one thinks white nationalist is a title people take and say, yeah, no, that's what I am. Um, whereas Marxists, yeah, a lot of professors identify as Marxists or they're greatly influenced by Marx. Yeah, it's that, and that's an important difference too. I mean, it, it, but also to Chuck's point, there's this attitude I think that has crept into academia where they can criticize society and elements of society, individuals, and it's free speech for them to and do it. And it's free speech, but but then when they come under criticism, it's yep. it, it becomes this you know soul altering. Uh, thing that they have to, you know, roll around in distress and scream for help. It, it triggers them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what happens is I think they go from calling their opponents white nationalists, biggest hate mongers. And these, these, these guys like Charlie Kirk, especially Dennis Prager, that's really mainstream conservative thought. If he's a hate monger, that's labeling all conservatives hate mongers. I mean, he's not somehow an extreme conservative. And so... And, and he's a practicing Jew. He's yeah, exactly. devotional. Yeah. He's devout. Religiously speaking, I mean, when the event started, Charlie Kirk wasn't on the panel. He introduced it. And I asked people about the event, and I, tell, I asked them, do you know what he talked about? And they say, no. He told people to observe the Sabbath day. That's what he spent his introduction on. And he <laughs> said, Dennis Prager has been helping me, as a Christian, learn how to observe the Sabbath. So that's the kind of advice that was being given. It's not exactly political and and uh, so let me objected to. Yeah. I have a question for you. So this brings up a point. Okay, so is that the type of program that you know? Here's what it is. I feel academia, and I you know look, I I, I support ASU financially, uh, I, various things there significantly. I feel college has become sort of pay for play now. You know, um, Sam and I and you could say we want to do an endowment chair for X and. Look, I think Michael Crow deserves a lot of credit for a lot of things. And one thing is, if you come in with 1.5 for an endowment chair, you come on in. <laughs> I mean, that's, just, yeah. that's just how he is, well, right? A, a, state, a university organized like ASU, we don't have lots of state taxes. We don't have any money right. from oil or things like that. Yeah, so so he does that, and he would do it for right or left. I don't think Michael Crow cares one way or another. Right. I mean, that's, well, I that's mean, the and, problem with their letter also. is They're saying uh, Lewis is paying he's to have his— his position taught to students, well, wait a minute, if that's what worries them, are they writing letters for all of the leftist centers at ASU or just the one? Well, it's not only that. How many of them are blessed of an endowment from a leftist endowment? 
Yeah. Which no yeah, one's right. has anybody even looked at that sound? No, no, but you know what? When you said that, Chuck and, and Dr. Uh, Anderson, when you said that, it, it occurred to some, me something from my time at the city of Phoenix because the city of Phoenix was re, re, repeatedly partnering with ASU to reach out to get grants from far leftist uh, charitable institutions and to endow chairs to study whether it was global warming or, or right. some you know something that Phoenix had some interest in. And in the five years that I was in Sal DeCista's office at the city of Phoenix, there were probably, if I would remember off the top of my head, 12 or 15 of those positions right, right. that came through on our budget. So should we – so should yep. colleges just stop accepting this? I mean that one way to solve this. I mean so for the, for the Lewis – for this Ted Lewis thing at Barrett, was that, was that the right entity to well, be having that type of thing at? And I, I think well, that's a fair question. How it gets, yeah. how it gets politicized. I just – I just put up on my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Owen Anderson, a um, interview I did this week with Representative Austin Smith, okay. and we were talking about this exact issue of how do we avoid politicizing public education, and this goes back to using these special words because we have a Center for American Institutions at ASU, right. which doesn't believe America is structurally racist and teaches the value of our founding principles. That's considered far conservative. Right. right. So, so those words aren't telling you to vote for Republicans. They don't tell you how to vote in the next election. It's just saying, hey, Thomas Jefferson has some really good ideas, and that's considered to be on the right. Whereas the political stuff on the left is very political. So this spring, we also had Ibram X. Kendi come out, oh, and geez. he's one of the guys who said discrimination is good as right. long as you do it the right way, which means uh, you discriminate against white people. He's very clear about that. That's not me putting words in his mouth. And yep, we hosted right. him, and no professor said. Wait, this is political. We shouldn't have that on campus. My my favorite Ibram X. Kendi moment is when Joy Reid didn't realize that and and started asking him that question. She you know, she's yep. asking him, Hey, uh, you didn't really say this, right? And he's like, Oh yes I did. That's exactly what I meant too. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I appreciate his honesty. Had, yeah. Yeah, and last week we had a drag event at ASU. And no professors wrote and said, "Hey, this might hurt some of my students because of well, their because, views of because sex. because you're not a Marxist. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. Yeah. People who oppose to anybody else speaking that opposes their view of the world is a Marxist. They can say whatever they want, but that's what they are. They're well, suppressing here's, here's free speech. Just, right. I think that's and and one of the classes I teach is logic. I'm a philosopher, so like my whole job, I'm paid." To question people. So the more someone says, hey, don't question me, the more that, you know, red flags are going off right. to say, hey, I got to question this person and, and use logic to do it. So what really disappoints me is that professors couldn't get into the substance. What I would have loved to have seen if they said, look, they, they, in their letter, they said they're worried for their LGBTQ plus students. Well, why? Presumably it's because uh, Dennis Prager believes that marriage is ordained by God between one man and one woman. So they should have written a letter debating that and said, hey, we don't believe in God. We think marriage is a social construct right. that's been used to oppress women. That would have been a great debate, and I know for sure Dennis Preger would have had that, and if he didn't want to, I'll debate it. But that's not what they did. They got right into name-calling, and I guarantee they expect their students to actually provide evidence in their papers and give arguments, not just resort to name-calling. Oh, who knows? For that. I mean, I, I don't know. I question that. Yeah, it right. depends. question it that, de- too. But... It, depends. it depends if they like the way their, their views are. I, I don't question I question that. I think that's where we're at now, and that's what's frightening about it. I think the, the guests we have talked about, who much of the right would find repulsive, they deserve the right to speak. There, there was a really good uh, tweet by Scott Walker, the former Wisconsin governor, a couple of days ago where he said you know, he had been at a forum and someone criticized him uh, on the basis of saying, well, conservatives don't want college students to hear these things that we disagree with. And Walker said, no, that's not it. We just want them to hear that there are two sides. That's very... Yeah, well, that's... Oh, yeah, I read that tweet. That's exactly right. Is They don't even give the two sides. And and, and then maybe I was uh, somewhat pampered as a philosopher because as a, as a student, I expected that. And my professors were good at doing that. Uh, I never really got the sense that, okay, my professors teach me his view. I would... Right. We'd, be, we'd go over philosophers who disagree with each other. And I got to figure out how to think about that. So... Yeah, I think those days are, are pretty well gone, and that's what really bothers me. That's what we need to bring back is the ability to teach students what is logic and how do we use it to evaluate different belief systems. And, 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 and sort of grow up. There are people you walk by every day, people you live with, 
that has just some opposite views on various things happening in the world. And if you can't handle that, get some help. Well, and that's, that's exactly why they go to the word hate monger and white nationalist bigot, because if they just said, hey, these guys disagree with us about marriage, you'd say, so? You know, we're, we're adults, lots of people have different opinions. So they have to go to something shocking and say, no, not just that, but these guys are white nationalists. And you think of Nazis or something, and you say, wow, really? I didn't know that. And you don't want to go to the event. Yeah, they, and, they, and that's really the sad part. That, and that that is where I felt Professor Simpson fell so short on this program, is he didn't understand the connection that uh, what they're doing are, are really just ad hominem attacks designed to suppress speech, that, that, that in doing so, they are committing a, an, an act against free inquiry and against free thought at that university, whereas, like you just said, Dr., had they gone out and said, we disagree with them on these points and we would like to have open debate on these issues, that's the poor purpose, as, as most of us understand it, of a university. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I said that uh, three of us wrote a letter, and I, that's one of the things I said in there about myself was, since I'm the philosopher in the group, I'll debate any of them or all of them at the same time. Let's do that. But I don't I, – I, I'm surprised to find this out, but it doesn't – I guess it doesn't surprise me. Uh, debating is considered – a form of, of uh, violence. So if you say, hey, let's debate this, they view that as using the coercion of reason. And reason is probably also white nationalist or something. Oh, jeez. Well, thank so even you. asking for public debate gets dismissed. Yeah, no, and that's got to stop. And, and folks, for any of those Barrett professors, if you want to come on, we will provide the platform on our podcast uh, with Dr. Anderson or others. Uh, you can debate it with us. You can debate it with him. Any of those letter signees who want to join us and and have that open discussion on these issues, we'd welcome it. We'll set it up. We'll provide the time and place. Chuck, uh, thank you so much. We really had a great show today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. I want to thank Dr. Owen Anderson for his time today. Doctor, we really appreciate you having on the program. And if you are not subscribed, folks, make sure you subscribe so you get our all of our podcasts, all of our content directly to your mailbox each week. Thanks, Doctor. Appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Folks, Breaking Battlegrounds back on the air next week. See you then.